This is Sound and Vision, a new podcast from KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. And I'm John Richards. And so this is this is a podcast called Sound and Vision, but Sound and Vision is a show that we've been airing here on KEXP since February. And now we're creating this podcast version. And this show is kind of the brainchild of my co-host here, John Richards. So, John, when you were first coming up with the concept of the show, what did you want listeners to take away from it? Well, Emily, when we air music on KEXP and we do so 24 hours a day, you don't get to dig into the deeper issues. You don't get to hear the musicians' voices. You don't even tell the stories in which they make music, be it current political events or their own personal struggles, both good or bad. And so when we created Sound and Vision, we wanted a place for musicians to tell their stories. We wanted to show that music connects us. And that seems like a big, big thing to say, but it's true. We really believe that music connects us all. And it's serious issues facing musicians like addiction and mental health and affordability. We deal with issues of race and gender and current events through music. And there's definitely underrepresented voices on this show as well. We want to make sure they have a voice on KEXP and with what we're trying to do. But at the end of the day, there are thousands of stories, thousands of creative types out there, all kinds of musicians working hard, and we wanted to give them a place where their stories could be told. And we're going to hear some of those stories on this, the very first pilot episode of Sound and Vision. John, what do we have this show? We're going to hear from Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie and how he quit drinking and became an ultramarathon runner. You know, I kind of had a moment where, you know, I went on a bender and then on the flight home from that bender told myself, I can't do this anymore. We'll get to know Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal through music. It really has been a critical part of my life. It's a part of how I ground myself. Jayapal represents Seattle and was the first Indian American woman to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. Then we'll hear how an all-black Seattle grunge fusion band almost made it big in the 90s until a national record deal went sour. And there was rumbling about not being comfortable about um, how to market an all-black band. But first, we're going to get to know exoneree Amanda Knox. You might recognize her name from a 2016 Netflix documentary. If I'm guilty, it means that I am the ultimate figure to fear because I'm not the obvious one. The girl known as Foxy Knox. Everyone is talking about it. I mean, it was a feeding frenzy for everyone. Knox spoke with KEXP's Skylar Locatelli about how music got her through life in an Italian prison. She started off by giving a Cliff Notes version of her case. I was studying abroad in Italy um, when I was 20 years old. And very shortly after I started taking classes, one of my roommates was murdered um, in our apartment. And I was arrested just a few days later after I was interrogated for 53 hours. And um, it's a long saga, but um, this prosecutor got fixated on the idea of me having taken part in some kind of sex game gone wrong, um, and when in fact all evidence pointed to this local burglar just breaking in and, and raping and killing my roommate. When you've first got to the Italian prison, um, you you were in a solitary situation for a period of time and and you mentioned singing um, gave you gave you a source of comfort. Can you can you yeah. tell me about that? Yeah. Um, it was a very stark contrast that I was shoved into. This 
prison was a very, very foreign and strange place for me. I was in isolation for one thing. So, you know, I didn't have access to people. I didn't have access to my family. I didn't have access to anything that was normal to me. All I had were the clothes that are on my back and my voice. And so I, to comfort myself in this um, this this very scary and confusing situation that I found myself in, I just fell back on what was familiar and I sang songs to myself to just just to feel um, just to feel like me and to feel like I had something to hold on to. And so I, I sang like all the Beatles songs and I sang Dido and I sang Happy Birthday. I was like I was singing anything that I could remember the songs to or like the lyrics to because I honestly was just alone for all day just alone with no one to talk to, not understanding what was happening to me, feeling very scared um, and just needing something nice. So that's what I did. It gave you some comfort during that time. Yeah, yeah. And like I really like I latched on to the lyrics, um, you know, like any kid who's going through something really hard, like Let It Be became my mantra for a long, long time because I had to, at a very young age, very suddenly grapple with the fact that I had no control over my life, that these greater forces were just pressing down on me. The earth as I knew it was crumbling underneath me and I had nothing to hold on to. So let it be, (laughs) let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, let it be. And like, hang on. And like, that's what people were telling me. My mom was saying, like, hold on. You know, we're gonna we're gonna figure this out. But for right now, just hold on. Did others start to hear you sing, or could did anybody catch note of? Yeah, of that? yeah, thick bars but thin walls right. type of thing. Um, yeah, so. Before anyone ever knew me in the prison, you know, I was in isolation for eight months. So uh, people got to know my voice and um, and people would even like, you know, we were in cells and I wasn't allowed to talk to anyone. But I was in this long hallway where all these barred doors were and people could like yell to each other through the hallway and people would yell requests to me after wow. after so long of like hearing me sing and so they would they would have me they really really liked Dido and after a while I started singing some Cat Power they really liked that anything that was like super melodic yeah did you have access to, to other music or were you able to listen to music at any point yes. in that experience? Yes. So I was really lucky um, in that I was. it was in a prison where they allowed you to buy like a, a little crappy CD player and you were allowed to have three CDs in your cell with you at a given time. So, um, and not everyone had a CD player, not everyone had CDs. These are actually precious commodities that were passed around in the prison. And once I was out of Um, isolation, I was allowed to be around the general community. And I was listening to, you know, my friend sent me some really great stuff like Blitz and Trapper and Fleet Foxes. And um, I remember like just grooving out to the XX, Mm -hmm. just 
uh, just like laying on my bed, closing my eyes and pretending not to be where I was. I find shelter in this way undercover hide away So really letting the music take me somewhere else. It meant a lot to listen to a lot of Pacific Northwest derived music because I missed I was just in so incredibly homesick so it meant a lot to like you can tell if something's made in the Pacific Northwest (laughs) you know it has a sound Um, and I gravitated towards that a lot but at the same time like we were passing CDs around and one CD that was like gold in the entire, you know, that I had was this Michael Jackson CD. And I would pass around this Michael Jackson CD and people would go nuts for it. They were like fighting over it um, because Michael Jackson was incredibly popular, even though nobody knew what he was saying. And then in return, I got to, I was introduced to a lot of really cool Italian artists. Um, I really liked Italian rap music. Um, And like anywhere from, you know, Giovanotti, who's this like chill, whimsical kind of guy. To just straight up Fabri Fibra, who's just like, I'm a gangster. I'm going to talk about whatever I want. Fuck the world. (laughs) And he just just makes trouble. And he's a a naughty, naughty boy. So he was fun to listen to because you could get angry. Like you could get pumped up. Music was a a way that I could feel angry, honestly. I got really numb because being angry about the situation I was in wasn't helping me. I was trapped being angry about it or being sad about it or wanting to, like, bang my head against the walls wasn't going to get me out. And so after so long, you I just got numb and... It was through music that I was able to really access any emotions of mine that I was suppressing just for survival's sake. Thinking about how music has um, been a part of your journey since prison, um, if you had to kind of fit, you know, sort of pick a few songs that help tell your story uh, and journey, what what would that be? I feel really um, close to feeling good by Nina Simone. Um, just the, the anguish and victory and joy and anger that can all be in her voice all at the same time really resonates with me. Um, I don't think that there's a simple emotion that I feel about what happened to me. I think the one that I end up falling back on is sadness. And I, and I think going back to her, I want to remember that I'm outside of this thing I'm moving beyond this thing and god does that feel good like it feels so good to wake up today
I mean, you talked about a fair amount of artists and songs and, and even the Italian musicians. Is there, when you go back or, or come across those artists or those songs, I mean, instantly kind of triggered in some way about what is, because a lot of times when I hear a song and I had a relationship with that song years ago and I haven't heard it in so long mm-hmm. and, and something brings out that experience when you hear that song again, Does, do, you, do you find that? Uh, happen to you from time to time with some of this music? Heck yes. Mm-hmm. When I hear um, XX, I know exactly, like, I, I feel like I'm exactly a very specific day in the, in the prison, and I'm in a very specific bed, and I know what, you know, I know it's, it's, it's weird how, um, how much it, it triggers me and brings me back to it. Um, or, like, it's actually hard for me to hear Let It Be anymore. Um, because I was listening to that and singing it to myself at a very early stage in my imprisonment when it was before I was wrongfully convicted. It was when I was still on trial and I still had hope that that the world would right itself. And so I was thinking, let it be, let it be. This trial's going to come to an end and I'm going to be okay. And then it didn't. And I was changed from that experience. So I don't actually listen to that song unless it happens to me, (laughs) you know. Um, I think one of my big things that I'm trying to get over is it's hard for me to go listen to live music anymore because um, crowds freak me out now. Um, I often feel cornered and like I need an escape route just in case because I don't like feeling trapped and crowds can make me feel trapped so I don't often go to live music for that reason and it's sad because I miss live music it was one of the things that I was looking for when I was in Perugia I mean you were you studied in Perugia and one of the things I was first asking other students there was where's the live music where's the live music so This is Sound and Vision. I'm Emily Fox here with my co-host, John Richards. Hi, John. Good to be here. So this next interview is an interview that I did with Ben Gibbard around what we call here at KEXP our Music Heals event. And it happened in the past few months, and it was focusing on addiction. And I, and I want you to fill in um, our listeners about what our Music Heals events are about here at KEXP. Yeah, right now we have four different Music Heals events. This is where we take an entire day of programming and focus in on an issue and then play the music and hear from musicians and others around that subject. It started years ago when I started talking about grief on the air and people shared their stories of lost loved ones and how music helped them through it or music that reminded them of their loved ones. Then we moved on to cancer, uh, how music helps you through radiation, through chemo, or again, songs from people to remind them of the people who died of cancer. We also cover mental health and addiction was a big one. Addiction affects not just us non-musicians, but musicians in a big way. I would say a majority of musicians are dealing with addiction or recovery from addiction. So when we have this day, we really do hear from a lot of musicians and how addiction affected them and their creative process. And it's a beautiful day. We have listeners write in and call in and share their stories in a song that reminds them of a moment of addiction or loss. And so Also on these addiction days, Music Heals, focusing on addiction recovery, we talk to artists that have struggled with this. And so recently, I interviewed Ben Gibbard, who you might know from the band Death Cab for Cutie, about his struggles with alcohol abuse and how he used running 
as his way to recover from that. He actually became an ultra marathon runner. So here's my interview with Ben Gibbard at Bar Souk Records in Seattle about his story. So there was a moment in 2008 where, where you said, I'm going to quit drinking and I'm going to start running. And you really started running. You started running marathons and then ultra marathons. Um, can you talk about where you were in you know, 2007, 2008 in terms of, I guess, your relationship with alcohol and then the recovery that you found in running? I think for me and I think for a lot of people, alcohol abuse and by me, I mean musicians, I think alcohol abuse is kind of a, it sneaks up on you slowly. And it starts with, we're around town, we're playing a show this Friday, we had a great show, we're going out drinking afterwards. And then, you know, we're starting to tour a bit, but the tours are short and they're kind of a a break from real life. So we're going to go out and kind of just go crazy because I'm going to be back at my job in two weeks. And and uh, over time, at least w- with me, I think what happened was, you know, the tours got longer, the, you know, drinking became a normal part. It became completely normalized. You know, so many musicians drink so much that it was all you. I found myself making those false equivalences of like, well, I don't really have a problem because I don't drink as much as that guy. Well, you're already around people who drink more than almost anybody in the world. So that's not really a fair kind of, you know, uh, measuring stick for that. And, you know, over time, I got to a place where, you know, we had been touring on plans and uh, that tour kind of wrapped up in uh, the end of 2006. And uh, by the end of the tour, I was waking up at two or three in the afternoon, just going right into sound check. And the show became a preamble to just going out drinking and you know i think it was due to homesickness boredom you know just trying to get trying to kind of create some excitement in an otherwise uh you know in an environment where we'd been playing so many shows that the shows were becoming less exciting because we'd just been doing so many of them and you know i kind of continued that behavior even after i got back throughout 2007 and i think i kind of knew i was heading towards an impasse and um you know i kind of had a moment where you know i went on a bender and then on the flight home from that bender told myself i can't do this anymore but tonight is my friend's birthday party i should just go have a couple just have a drink just have a drink and and then go home and then it was three in the morning (laughs) and you know i'm stumbling home trying to get my keys in my door and, you know, I woke up the next morning and was like, not only can I just not, I've lost the ability to control this. And also, you know, we have a record coming out in a couple of months, which was the record Narrow Stairs. And I just realized there was, there was no way I could continue with this behavior into the next album cycle. Or, you know, someone was going to throw me into a rehab program or something. And, I, and being um, kind of stubborn and prideful, I wanted to be the one that kind of, cut it off rather than have somebody tell me I didn't want to walk into a room and have all my friends there telling me I had a problem because I knew I had a problem and then you found running I mean how did you find running and what did running feel like to you was it was it to you I mean like oh I found something completely different that satisfies it I mean where where was that transition where you realized that running could be this outlet for you I'd spent running a little bit in 2007 and I kind of just one day decided like I think I could run two miles you know and so I had been running a little bit, but not a lot. Um, but 
You know, I, I think for me, especially as a touring musician, I just needed something other than sitting on a tour bus all day, you know, waiting for to play at 9 p.m. And the idea and the idea of getting up in the morning, have some coffee, breakfast, you know, reading a bit and like strapping on some running shoes and going exploring whatever town we were in was much more exciting than just remaining sedentary all day. And it wasn't that I needed that I was worried I was going to slip back into drinking if I wasn't running. It filled this void that I didn't really know I ever had had before that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm a runner, not not an ultra marathon runner, but my co-host John Richards is a marathon runner, and I think for us, running is a way, just a really w- great way to clear the mind, and also gives you that goal. Like, I can't eat this, or I can't drink this, because I want to go on this awesome run tomorrow, and also just that you know, I've done the Bellingham Trail Running series, oh, cool. <laughs> um, where you know you go on these amazing routes, and mm-hmm. and you kind of get lost, and whoa, I just ran for you know thirteen miles. Um, mm-hmm. But how would you describe how running feels to you, um, and, and do you believe that it was a part of your recovery? Running for me is very much a spiritual practice at this point, and you know, I, I certainly don't think that you need to run as far as I do to kind of achieve, you know, a level of enlightenment. But, you know, I have found when I've been deep into an ultra marathon, there is inevitably a moment where everything falls away and I'm just a being in space, just moving through the world, moving through this beautiful environment um, on a trail, on a mountain somewhere. And, you know, all the concerns that you might have about anything in your life just disappear and you have these like like moments of just flow and zen that, you know, people achieve them by myriad ways, right? I mean, people do yoga, people take psychedelics, people run, people fast, people, you know, sweat it out, whatever, you know. But this has just been something that I've, I've found has been, um, it's, you know, a, a very real spiritual practice in my life. And, you know, as, as it relates to recovery, I feel, well, I, I don't feel, I know there are a lot of ex-addicts ex-addict ultra runners <laughs> and you know that's that's a dangerous thing to do i think if you're just replacing one addiction for another i mean obviously an addiction to running is inarguably better than an addiction to like crack you know um but at the same time one thing that running ultra marathons doesn't necessarily give you is balance and uh you know runners get injured and you know life gets in the way of your training log and you know i think that it's it's important. I, one thing I'm always constantly struggling with is trying to make sure that I am not robbing Peter to pay Paul in my own life when it comes to my running. And make sure that, yeah, I do a lot of it. It's a huge hobby of mine, but it's not the only interest I have outside of music. I want to live where so meets body and let the sun wrap its arms up. I'm John Richards, and you're listening to Sound and Vision. And Emily, when we had this idea for Sound and Vision, one of the subjects we wanted to cover was politics and politicians and to hear their story or their stances or their history through music. Now, we weren't sure that would actually work. We just thought it was a good idea. Maybe those stories are out there. And you 
uh, have executed it very well. You've talked to some amazing people, including the mayor recently and others, about how music was in their life. Yeah, I interviewed the mayor of Seattle, kind of going through her life story, but through music. I mean, often when you think of politicians, they already have a script of what it is that they're going to say to you, especially when you're in the media. So let's get to know them on the personal level. And I feel like music is a really beautiful way to do that. So I interviewed the mayor of Seattle. Also, um, Washington State had the largest incoming class of women of color this year. So I interviewed seven, I believe, of the new women of color in state politics about their personal stories as told through basically a playlist. And I did this same thing with, as you heard earlier in the show, with Amanda Knox, as well as with uh, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. And Pramila Jayapal made history when she started representing Seattle in the U.S. House of Representatives in 2017. I was the first South Asian American woman ever elected and the first person of color from our Washington Democratic delegation ever to Congress. So here is her life story through music. And to start, Jayapal was born in India and moved to Singapore in Indonesia with her family before she moved to the U.S. when she was a teenager. And I asked Jayapal if there was a song that reminds her of her childhood. (laughs) Well, I was thinking about this because everything in Indonesia was like 10 or 20 years behind the United States, you know. So we had songs that were popular in the U.S., a decade earlier that would come to us. And so the things that I remember were, you know, like the Eagles was a big deal when the Eagles came out. Welcome to the Hotel California. I remember Holland Oats was a big deal. You're a rich girl and you're gone too far because you know it don't matter anyway. And then I sang. And so I remember singing I Don't Know How to Love You from Jesus Christ Superstar in one of our, I, did, I had a solo for that song. I don't know how to love you. And then I also sang all these Indonesian sort of popular songs. And I still know them. I still sing them. We sang them on the Immigrant Workers Freedom Ride because we had a couple of folks from Indonesia. And recently I went to the Indonesian ambassador's house, mentioned that I still remember some of my Indonesian songs, and he immediately said, sing them, and took a little YouTube video of his wife, the ambassador's wife, and I singing Halo Bandung, which is a very popular old Indonesian song, and put it on YouTube. lama <laughs> beta how would you describe your relationship with music? It's been such a integral part of my life. My, my dad actually loved music. And um, when he was young, he wanted to learn classical Indian singing. But he was a boy and he wasn't allowed. And so his sister was taking singing lessons and he would go and he would watch them, but he was never allowed to sing himself. But he has a beautiful voice. And uh, I think he passed it on, uh, you know, some piece of that musical spirit to us. Um, so I sang all through high school in um, an a cappella choir, and then I took piano lessons for 12 years, classical piano music. But we used to sing, and my dad loved to stand around the piano, and he would force us. It was terrible, actually. He would We would have guests over, and then he would force us to come out and play, you know, some piece. Like, I remember for me, it was the Turkish Rondo. I used to always have to play the Turkish Rondo. <laughs> But I love it. It really, um, it really has been a critical part of my life. It's a part of how I ground myself. And you know, Sunday mornings, I have certain 
certain music that I like to wake up to, jazz, Anushka Shankar, um, you know, Indian ragas uh, that I listen to in the mornings. And then just sort of, you know, I get stuck a little bit in a couple of decades ago. So I rely on my child, Janak, who's a musician, to tell me all the things I should be listening to now. As I mentioned, you were born in India, lived in Singapore and Indonesia before moving to the U.S. when you were 16. Why did your family move to the U.S.? My family never moved to the U.S., actually. I came here by myself when I was 16 years old. My parents had about $5,000 in their bank account, and they used all of it to send me here by myself. And I never really was grateful enough to them until I think I had my own child. And and when Janak turned 16, I thought about what that meant as a parent to send your kid across the ocean and know that they might never come back. But they really believed in education. And so I came here for college by myself when I was 16. Wow. Colin did 16. That's impressive. Yeah. (laughs) I was precocious. So you you actually had your child, um, Janak, when you were in India during a fellowship Can you talk about kind of what that experience was like, and is there a song that reminds you of that trip back to India? Yeah, well, what was amazing is we were living, um, Janak's father and I were living in Varanasi, um, which is a very spiritual town in India, and um, right by the river Ganges. And we used to take bhajan lessons. Bhajans are the old folk songs, um, Hindi folk songs. And we would go and take bhajan lessons. And then, you know, in the winter, Janak was born in February. In the winter, Varanasi transforms into a musical city. And all the great Indian artists, classical artists, come to Varanasi. And there are these concerts on the banks of the Ganges. And so we were sitting there, you know, sort of with all this music around us as I was pregnant. And so the incredible story is that when Janak was born... Uh, Janak was one pound, 14 ounces. and Born prematurely. Born very prematurely, 26 and a half weeks, and was just so sick. I mean, just every day for a month, we didn't know if he was going to make it or not. And then it was about morbidity issues, you know, what was going to be wrong with <laughs> with them. You know, Janak had to have all these blood draws, multiple blood draws and injections and all kinds of things and just terrible and I would start singing these bhajans to him. And would immediately notice Janak would calm down the minute he started to hear those songs. And it was really incredible. And to this day, Janak remembers a lot of those songs. And it's it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to remember. But music was a part of that and so then when when Janak was little they would wake up and they would sing that's all they would do for the first half hour they would lie in bed and I wouldn't go to them I would just sit there and listen because they would just be humming and singing and tapping their fingers you know later during the day music was just such a part of Janak's life and I think it has to do with how much music they listened to while they were in my belly (laughs) and and Janak's now a musician now is a musician and just had a record uh, released on Astronautico. Their band is called Honey Oat, and they're amazing. They're on tour right now. Is there a song that reminds you of, of motherhood? Um, a lot. You know, I got divorced soon after coming back to the United States, so I was raising Janak um, half of the time as a single mom. And so I remember moving into my new house and and just blasting Joan Armitrading, me, myself, and I. I want to be 
And then when Jonak was growing up, we listened to a lot of music, and there was a um, a song, "Fill Me Up Buttercup." It was the Foundations, but there was a group called Sugar Beats that sort of made it into an album for kids, and we used to sing that. We used to blast that and sing it as we were walking. I have a feeling that Jenik might be a part of this next question, but is there a local Seattle or Washington-based musician or band that you love? Well, you know, I've got to be a proud mama. I mean, what can I say? Jenik and uh, their partner, Gabe, um, musician partner, just released Honey Oat, and their lead single is fantastic, A Stranger Spring. But there's also another great piece on there where they have a guest rapper. It's called A Small Piece of String. Life is exhausting and it ain't faint. Not much is easily erased. I treat my smile like it's face paint. Man, I'm such a child when this place ain't treating me how I want it. The race ain't my speed. I'd rather vacate. So I just have to plug them. But then also, you know, I've loved listening to, uh, I love the Fleet Foxes. Death Cab for Cutie. And I'll follow you into the dark. And now as a as a congresswoman, we've worked with them. I got to introduce them when they played their most recent album release. It was really great. They they want to be political, and uh, that's been fantastic. I actually love some of the old Nirvana songs too. And then jazz, you know, we've been, Jonak played Garfield Jazz, and so we got to really learn about the jazz history in Seattle, which has been fantastic. I love Hollis Wongware. Um, she's always been a favorite and a friend of mine. So we have such great music here. Brandy Carlisle played with um, the Indigo Girls several years ago when I was running for office and the Indigo Girls had endorsed me. Closer I am to and I went backstage, and it happened to be the year Brandy Carlisle was playing. I'm sure she doesn't remember at all, but um, I remember her. We're fortunate in Seattle to have such a thriving music scene. Is there a song that reminds you of either your campaigns in the past or a song that you feel like represents your goals and your political life? The first time I ran for Congress, the thing that comes up is Beyonce because she had just released Lemonade. And, you know, most a lot of my Twitter at that time I was not doing by myself. And even now I only do about half of my Twitter account. But um, I tweeted... From Lemonade, I tweeted a little stanza from Lemonade about the grandmother. Grandmother, the alchemist, you spun gold out of this hard life, conjured beauty from the things left behind. And my whole staff 
was asking each other, who tweeted that? Did you tweet that? Who tweeted that? And then they realized it was me. And there was this big surprise somehow that I was listening to Beyonce. But so that became, they started calling me Queen B instead of Queen P. And they sort of created a whole mock album cover that looked, you know, with, with my face in the middle. Um, but, you know, a lot of the songs around the campaign, um, I remember thinking about Ain't No Mountain High Enough, Marvin Gaye's song. We were, we were trying to come up with a, a, a campaign theme song, and that was, that was one of them um, that was really important. But we listened to music all the time during the campaign. It was, it was critical. Listen, baby, ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough, baby. Do you have a favorite song? You know, it's a tough one, but I got to say it's probably September. I just love Earth, Wind & Fire. I always have. Every time I turn it on, I get up and dance. You know, sometimes in the mornings in D.C., I'm getting ready for a really tough day, and I just need a pick-me-up, and I just blast that song, and I, I love it. So that's probably, that's probably my favorite song. This is Sound and Vision, a new podcast from KEXP. This spring marked the 25th anniversary of an album called In God's You Lust by a band called Image. It was an all-black grunge, rock, reggae fusion band from Seattle that almost made it big in the 90s until a national record deal went sour. And this is a band Eva Walker rediscovered. And Eva's a DJ here at KEXP. She's also the front woman of a band called The Black Tones. It was kind of amazing because something like this is pretty significant for someone who is in an all-black rock and roll band in Seattle. Eva felt connected to the band, so she decided to bring them in for an interview. And the conversation started off by Image talking about how emotional and dramatic the release of their album In God's You Lust was. First, we'll hear from bassist Cedric Ross, and later we'll also hear from guitarist Chris Amawale and drummer Davey C. We were assigned to a subsidiary of Capitol Records, so technically we weren't Capitol Records, but they were a part of uh, what we were doing. I think it was Liberty Records that we signed to. And in that experience, the deal was, hey, we want you guys to cut um, an EP and then that's what we're going to use for now. And then we'll really introduce you to with an album, you know, I don't know, eight months, maybe a year down the road. And then while we were trying to cut this album, the record label executives were not uh, feeling good about our song selection. And there was rumbling about not being comfortable about um, how to market an all-black band. Basically, we got dropped the second we gave them the, the record, and it was extremely an extremely emotional experience. At that time, why do you think the label didn't, didn't play you guys? 
Um, this would qualify as one of those things that we probably all have different opinions about, and okay. I completely respect the opinions of of my colleagues here. So I, I'll just say really briefly from my side, I think that the era at the time, the way that the public saw black rock bands, if you will, they saw it in terms of quantity and not in terms of quality. So we already have the black bands that we need. We don't need any more black band, rock bands right now, mm-hmm. one. And two, if they see our pictures on an album cover, will people actually purchase the record? Um, two of those things are, like, both those things are foreign to me. And so it was hard for me to to grapple with because I felt like we were doing some really, really good yeah. stuff. For the In God's You Less record, was there any themes on that album that you feel um, told a story that you'd want to share? When you look at the record, it's basically code switching from the beginning to the end. Crack Dominium especially, like, I'm a nurse now and as a psych nurse working with people in rehab. Like, if you look at Crack Dominium, starts with you're trying to cop, you right. meet your dealer, yeah. then, you ha- then you're high, and then you need it again. So you go from thrash to funk. Back to thrash. And that's the intention. When you look at uh, Meg Rivers, DGC, Bill Clinton, and me, slash I, it's a, it's a juxtaposition of, like, because we, we did that song at a regular pop tempo, and it was great, and everybody's like, let's go to the bank, and this is going to be great. And it's about racism, and we said, let's drop it to halftime. And once we did that for us, it meant everything. Once we were able to perform it to the audience, it meant everything. Once the record label heard it, it meant nothing. (laughs) And that's a bad mix to come across. only other thing I'll say is like the EP is like the straight line of a joke and you never get the punchline because we did not get to finish our album. Twenty-five years later, what feelings, emotions come up when thinking and talking about and listening to the record, The In God's You Lust? I think that Chris's point, you know, we were looking for the punchline for, for the, the follow-up to that EP. And so it it definitely is a milestone to what we thought would be this incredible career. And had it not been for people, may argue that that the reason why we didn't get we didn't continue on with the label might have been because of label issues or this or that. But I believe that the atmosphere, the racial atmosphere, played a, a bigger part than it should have. And I am grateful that I am not 
I'm grateful that that I remember it, but I also move forward in a, as a positive way as possible. I continue to play music, um, and I continue to try to um, communicate to you know my son, and and so that he understands that he can be whoever he wants to be, and that he's not limited by by any sort of racial boundaries. Yeah, it was a long time ago, and a lot of things I don't remember, <laughs> but I do remember is that um, we came together and did something really special. And it's not like special, meaning trying to tell people special. It was just special to us. At least it was special to me. It was um, that kind of like us against the world, you know, because it just seemed like no one liked what we were doing. No one could get it, you know. Not nobody, but just like, you know, it was hard to, hard to move forward. But we still did it, and we did it our way. And that's really hard to do, especially as a black band, especially as a black rock band, you know. But we did it anyway. And I could always just look back and go, yeah, you know, just happy about that, you know, that we did it our way. Yeah, you brought up a lot of stuff, you know. <laughs> like, I wasn't really thinking about this. Like, it comes around sometimes. I definitely appreciate like I said, with the code switch, and it seems like if this record we call it something else, then the In God You Lust maybe call it Tuesday or a day in a black kid's life because you're dealing with racism, sexism, unrequited love, and crack. Like, you know, the thing that always comes back to me is crack dominium was across the street from our house. So it was an apartment building, and they bought crack in one section, they cooked it in another section, and the dude that got the money was in the other section. And so that happened all the time, but the thing that struck Davy C. and I one day was a kid had left that night and came back that day and was just, and they're like, dude, it's 10 a.m. We're not open for you, you know? And we watched him go through this for, like, four hours, and we had a song by the time it was over, like... This is awful, you know. So that it's just, in some ways it's antiquated, but in some ways it's just like, you know, Devon Manier was talking about having like a network for black bands and artists because you're that kid. We were by ourselves in Stillicum, Washington. Davey C's by himself in Hilltop. Shannon's by herself in Spokane. By some reason we all met. If we hadn't, we'd still be that. You wonder, do you exist? Do you exist? I see the black tones. I'm like, wow, you know, I'm not by myself. Like, no. and you see us, that's and important. you like when you look, you're like, yeah. I'm not by myself. And it's like that's important because it's you know when we we explain the capital too. It's like you know they're like, why do you play so many styles of music? And it's like because we can, because we are your cooks, we're your dishwashers, we're your maids, we're the people that have to listen to music that you play. While we exist purely. So, yeah, guess what? I'm, my family grew up in Texas. I can play country music and I can play it good enough that you go, oh. What do you think Image would have contributed on a national level if given the chance? I think that Image would have altered uh, a certain genre of music and influenced um, other labels to take a stronger in and harder look at uh, musicians of color and would um, have gone a uh, we would have taken strides in helping to remove this barrier that people of color can only play a certain certain genres of music and not others and I think we would have helped to sort of usher in that era where you know where I think we're leaning more towards I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're leaning more towards today. 
and and I think we would have incorporated like I think we incorporated so many styles of music and blended those styles together, and I think that would have become more um, appreciated. So that was KEXP's Eva Walker speaking with Cedric Ross, Chris Omowale, and Davy C of the band Image. It was a Seattle-based rock, reggae, grunge fusion band that was active in the '90s. So, Eva, something that struck me during the interview on and off the mic when you interviewed the band Image is how much the band appreciated that you were interested in them and how much they appreciated your band, the Black Tones. What was it like for you to discover that band and then be able to hear their story in person? It was pretty unbelievable. I had so many questions for them and so many thoughts, and I even had more questions after we were done. But I was like, okay, we're not going to get to everything. That's fine. Um but it's pretty flattering to hear them mention the Black Tones. And, and they went to your CD release show recently, yeah, didn't they? Or yeah. album release show, I yeah. should say. And what's funny is when I first met Chris, which was actually just a few weeks ago, um, was at our show in Tacoma, and he gifted us, he gave us gifts wrapped in like gold wrapping paper and mine's was two books and he gave my brother a gift and their bass player a gift and we hugged we took a picture I was like we're gonna be in touch soon we walked out we were walking to the car with our gear and I just turned I put my head in my brother's chest and I just cried (laughs) and my brother was like are you okay what happened what's going on (laughs) I was like no these are like good tears I was like this band image is a band that I've admired now since that CD was put in my hand that I just thought would be a distant thing that I would never be able to really explore, meet, and talk to. And the fact that we've come this far to all know each other and we're having the conversation and being, again, in um, an all-black band, uh, me and my brother, it's just kind of like meeting your heroes you know, and it's and it was just a little. I was a little overwhelmed, <laughs> um, but from discovering them until now, I just feel like there's a big, um, a big accomplishment. And it was beautiful to see that that you admire them, but at the same time, what Chris had said also the day that you interviewed him is that he went to the show and he was like, "Wow, watching the Black Tones on stage." made me feel like I did when I was an image in the 90s. Being able yeah. to play different genres, being in an all-black band on stage, you know, in the Seattle area, and then to see you on stage, he's like, it happened, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, bands like that paved the way for bands like like me and my brother's band, you know? And it's important to recognize that. It's important to remember history so we don't make the same mistakes or so we can until we can keep progressing and i think honoring image is something that i couldn't not do as a person whose band is is similar to theirs and i just think that that history is important and when i was younger i didn't see a lot of bands that looked like rock and roll bands that looked like me and my brother in seattle of course we were learning about bands I love, Nirvana and Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and all those, those are great bands. I mean, I love Alice in Chains. Those bands don't look like me. And so, of course, when you're a kid, you, you do ask yourself, when, you're like, man, I like this so much, but am I supposed to be doing this? Like, representation is important. So getting the, 
wanting to do this with image is for these other Northwest based black kids that want to play rock and roll music. Like, look, it's a thing. And it's happened long before the black tones did it. Well, that's beautiful. I'm so glad you got to interview Image. I'm so glad you got to come in and share your story as well. I've been speaking with Eva Walker. Thank you so much, Eva. Thank you, Emily. I'm John Richards. You're listening to Sound and Vision. And I'm Emily Fox. And on the broadcast version of the show, every single week, John, who is here at the station, he's also the co-host of the show, but he also is our morning DJ here at KEXP. And each week for Sound and Vision, John, you ask a listener question that we then incorporate into the show. Yeah, it helps with the morning show as well, I have to say, because we throw out some really cool questions and we want to hear how the public responds to things like, what is your favorite song to run to? Or what song helped you through your addiction? Or what show was the most amazing show you've ever been to? And the responses that pour in are so amazing. So we are going to air this as part of the podcast. And what we're going to ask this week is, what is your favorite song lyric and why? And here are some of the responses. I'm Kurt. I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And my favorite lyric is the line... The Snowflakes and Avalanche from the song I'm Scum by Idols. The reason I chose that lyric is because I live in Grand Rapids. It's sort of the conservative side of Michigan, this sort of Bible belt of the state. And that's not really me. Um, So I often feel like, you know, family members or even colleagues sometimes might see me as this, you know, liberal snowflake. But as opposed to like taking that label as a negative, when I hear that song, and even just when I listen to KXP in general, I kind of feel like I've been able to find a community of, of like-minded people, and community is really important to me. And so when I hear that lyric, I, I, I just think that you know, there's power in, in the things that draw us together more than the things that push us apart. And, you know, you can be a snowflake and together with other snowflakes really cause an avalanche, this kind of powerful movement. And it gets me really excited every time I hear that song. My name is Derek Mathis, and I live in Ballard. My favorite song lyric that I'd like to share is one from Grantley Phillips from the band Grantley Buffalo. And it's a simple lyric as part of a a longer set of of words in this part of the song. And the lyric is, but hate is not a lone assailant. And the reason I like that is that I feel it really speaks to uh, the way society seems to be very, very divided these days, and there seems to be an awful lot of contention and people fighting with each other. And this talks about it, hate as sort of a weapon. And to me, it's the sort of thing that uh, resonates timelessly because I feel like hate is something that's taught these days. And, and that's really why I feel it's such a great lyric, that it's not a lone assailant. It's the idea that hate is, is born and bred and cultured uh, across groups and among people. 
My name is Jen, and I live in Seattle, and my favorite song lyric is Knocked silly, knocked flat, sideways down, these things they pick you up and they turn you around. From Me and Honey by R.E.M. Knocked silly, knocked flat, sideways down, these things they pick you up and turn you around. The reason that I'm so drawn to that lyric is, um, one, the the album came out at a very perfect time for me. I was uh, just about to turn 15, a freshman in high school, and just on the eve of being a teenager and having all kinds of uh, emotional <laughs> uproar, as teens often do, that would cause you to then be knocked silly, not flat, and feeling low. And as I connected with the album and, and subsequent R.E.M. albums after, that song, and particularly that lyric, have come to me in those times when I have felt the most low. And the combination of the haunting kind of repetition of the melody and, and Kate Pearson's harmony were very soothing. And then combined with these things, they pick you up and they turn you around. And I feel like when I hear that in my head, it's a reminder that you've been down here before and something is going to come and turn you in a different direction for the better. So that was our listener question for this week. And don't think here on the podcast you're going to be able to escape our questioning of you. We're going to be asking you questions on this podcast to participate. The email address is soundandvision at kexp.org as well. If you ever have any feedback or when we do ask a question, you can answer it that way. So, John, we're almost done with our very first Sound and Vision podcast. It's a dream come true. We got it on the air. We got it on the podcast. And we want to thank everybody for listening to this, our first Sound and Vision podcast. By the way, KXP is a listener-supported radio station, which means the majority of our funding comes from individual donations. So like we do on our on-air fun drives and how I talk about every day on the air, independent free media does cost a little money. We're on the trust system. So we kindly ask you to give a one-time $20 donation to this podcast. You can do that at kexp.org slash sound if you liked what you heard. And if you did like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. That helps other people know that this podcast exists. And we will thank you oh so very much. Thank you so much for listening. We also want to thank our contributors to this show, including Skylar Locatelli and Eva Walker. And as we will be ending each and every podcast, we will ask a musician who's been on the show why music matters. Here's Cedric Ross, Davey C., and Chris Omowale of the band Image answering that very question. Music is a way to 
elevate the things that I feel, um, the, the experiences that I've had, where words may fail me. It also is a great transmitter to other people out there. And I'll be real honest, I still play music today. Um, I hope to release an album in the future, that kind of thing. But I'll tell you, since I was 19 years old, I have always been out there transmitting what I consider to be as honest thoughts as possible and hope that somebody is picking up on that signal. And and they don't even need to, to, to talk to me. I just want them to know that I'm reaching out. And that's really important to me. Yeah, music to me is freedom, pure and simple. It's the only time I get to be on this earth myself. That's it. It's the only time. Just life. Like it's been, like Cedric said, we met in sixth grade. Like before that, that's the only best friend I had was music. Like music and books. Like it's what will transport you. And people say, Chris, where are you from? I'm from books. I'm from music. I'm from Miles Davis. If you want to go back, I'm from John Coltrane. If you want to go back, Louis Armstrong, like Jimi Hendrix, like those were my friends, like those sounds, like things that I could not express, like that I did not, to just know you're not alone. That was Sound and Vision. Thank you so much for listening.